Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. We're dealing with, uh, you know, almost like a natural born criminal sociopath here. He just happened to focus his efforts on crypto. And I think, you know, the trial is sort of bearing that out so far. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two quan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, I named trading firms who are very involved. Um, I like that ETH is the ultimate problem. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. Today, a special guest, we've got Gabriel Shapiro, general counsel of crypto Twitter, also of Delphi Digital. And then I'm Haseeb, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Gabe, welcome to the show. We have been tirelessly following your uh, critique and your contextualization of all the crazy stuff happening in crypto law this year. And uh, you've been a very outspoken just thinker commentator on everything happening so far. Everybody so far has been following the SPF trial. We started talking about it last week. What's been your sense just as an observer, not even talking about the specifics and the details, what's been your sense so far of has this lived up to expectations? Has it been below expectations? How do you you feel about the drama as it's playing out? Yeah, uh, the trials lived up to expectations, I would say, um, in the sense that, you know, we're talking big numbers, really obviously bad acts and, you know, SBF very much uh, in the hot seat and uh, taking a lot of blame and a lot of big hits in the courtroom. Yes. So when we recorded the last show, this was right when Michael Lewis's book had just been released. And so nobody had really read it yet. There were were a few people who kind of dumped uh, details or juicy anecdotes that were in the book. But we started running through it, and basically, you know, crypto Twitter managed to digest almost everything within a couple of days. Um, in the last episode, we had a debate, more or less, between myself and Tarun about SBF's intentions, and I got a lot of heat for that conversation, where I was saying that I thought that uh, SBF more or less was trying to do what it said on the tin and kind of lost his way, and Tarun was arguing that he was a self-conscious fraud the whole way through. I think I have to leave my words on that. After, yeah, I was about to be like, I don't think you got much ground to stand on. No, no, no. I, I would say that my argument did not age well reading some of the anecdotes from the book. Um, so in the book, w- one of the most striking things that SBF uh, reveals in this book is some of his, I guess, his personal diaries where he talks about, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a quote where he's talking about dating Caroline. And Caroline, I guess, like they, they wrote each other in like these blog posts, essentially, where they talked about their feelings and the pros and cons of having a potential romantic relationship. Um, a very kind of, I, I don't know, you know, very rationalist kind of, you know, post-empathic thing, way to navigate relationships. But um, one of the things that SBF wrote in trying to essentially tell Caroline, hey, you probably shouldn't date me, is he wrote, there's a pretty decent argument that my empathy is fake. My feelings are fake. My facial reactions are fake. I don't feel happiness. What's the point in dating someone you, who you physically can't make happy? 
uh, and in many of the anecdotes, so I, I, I've probably gotten through about the first half of the uh, Michael Lewis book. I haven't gotten through the whole thing yet, but he talks at length. There's a lot of stuff in there about SBF not feeling emotions, having sort of anhedonia, feeling extremely disconnected from, you know, anything and just kind of being driven purely by this kind of cold calculus or probabilistic thinking. And uh, it really seems, the more that I read about it, the more it really seems like he was a pretty troubled person. And it it does kind of seem like there was a lot more power-seeking behavior even earlier on than I originally understood in Sam's story. So I, I definitely I, I definitely take it back. I still don't think that he was a self-conscious fraud in the sense that he was trying all along to, you know, make FTX a big gigantic Ponzi scheme. Uh, I think it's more that he was he was clearly somebody who was he, he was he seemed to have a lot of emotional issues. Uh, from a very early age. And it seemed like he had very weak scruples and, and was, you know, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to really understand the psychology of this person, but it does seem like he was a pretty, very conflicted person oh, from a very I, I disagree age. with you in one way. I think the moment that they did the private sale of FTT in 2018 to a bunch of market makers at 90% below, and then they had to keep increasing inflation to keep up with the 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 way their growth was created, that was the moment the Ponzi scheme started. And then at that point, it's like, okay, you could shut it down, but they didn't. And like, to me, that is the original sin, right? Like none of these books talk about that because I guess like, I don't know, none of them like talking about actual finance, even though they're talking supposedly financial novels. I, I just think he was, I just think he was a sociopath, quite honestly. I mean, uh, that that's Martin Shkreli's take for what it's worth, who may, you may, you may argue takes one to no one. Right. Um, but you know, he sort of read Michael Lewis's book and, and distilled the important parts of it, but interprets the facts very, very differently, uh, from Michael Lewis. And essentially says, yeah, we're dealing with, uh, you know, almost like a natural born criminal sociopath here. He just happened to focus his efforts on crypto. And I think, you know, the trial is sort of bearing that out so far. Um, the defense is, is not really finding, uh, not really finding much to really hang their hat on here. Uh, at least, you know, as they're limited to merely cross-examining witnesses and so forth, we'll see how they do when they present their case. Well, actually, Gabe, a question for you. Um, one thing I've been observing is that, at least just reading the transcripts, is that the SBF lawyer seems to just not be able to get anything, like any objections in, like almost all of them are getting overruled. It's actually like very one-sided that the yes. the US thought, like, what, have you, like, I don't know how normal that is in this stage, but like, can you give us some context about that? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not a trial lawyer myself, you know, but I I follow these things to an extent, and uh, my sense is, you know, really, there's kind of like two strategies. There's a saying, right? When the law is not on your side, pound the facts. When the facts are not on your side, pound the law. And the unfortunate thing here is, it seems like uh, SBF's lawyers have neither on their side. The facts are clearly against him. There's an ocean of evidence against him, um, and and there's no real clever legal arguments here either. So they're they're grasping at straws. They're desperate, and um, you know their desperation shows in the fact that the kinds of things they're trying to raise are are very tangential things relating to SBF's lawyers and the the fact that maybe he had some ultimately altruistic motive um, deep down inside that led him to do all this. And, you know, the judge just, just sees the weakness of these and the irrelevance of these, and he, he's just not letting them make these arguments, and I think rightfully so. 
Another thing, by the way, just to give some context to listeners, while we are recording this episode, it's during Caroline's testimony. So we're kind of mid midway through that, just to give you some temporal context in case there's some crazy bombshell we don't cover on today's episode. Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, it is bizarre to me, given how the trial has played out thus far. And maybe if I can just very, very briefly summarize kind of what's played out in the trial. So far, we've had Gary Wang, who was, uh, I believe he was the CTO. We had him t- uh, testify that, for one, uh, Gary was instructed by Sam to give Alameda a special a status in their liquidation engine such that they can never be liquidated. They had unlimited borrowing, I, I think up to $65 billion credit line at one point that was demanded by Sam, just make it bigger, make it bigger, make it bigger. And uh, we, we learned as well that FTX's insurance fund actually did not exist. So- you might know that most exchanges, uh, centralized exchanges tend to have these insurance funds such that if there is a bad liquidation, that the insurance fund eats the loss instead of the loss getting socialized among all traders, which is how it used to be back in the olden days. FTX claimed to have an insurance fund much in line with other uh, big exchanges, but their insurance fund was actually completely fake. There was a Python script they wrote that basically just took the daily trading volume and multiplied it with a random number close to 7,500 and displayed that as being the size of the insurance fund, um, which is just it's so like it's so brazenly just like not even trying um and of course nobody no there's a question nobody even asked nobody even wondered like huh i wonder if ftx really has the insurance fund which just kind of shows i think Tarun, you tweeted about this like how many things i think that centralized exchanges cut corners with like it's only really now after ftx that we have proof of reserves and even still proof of reserves is so nascent and it's so kind well, it of has no not proof really of liabilities it only has right proof exactly of without a proof of liabilities right. with just having proof of reserves it doesn't really prove what you would want to prove and with these insurance funds right now like the insurance funds are not on chain they're, they're you know in most of these cases they're not anywhere it's just a number on a ui uh and as yeah, it turns and, out and to be a shill the only way to actually really have proof of liabilities is basically DeFi, where it's like something where you know the entire history of the set of all wallets, right? Like it's 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 like pretty hard to imagine the centralized entity ever being able to prove That's to right. you conclusively. So certainly that- proof, right? Certainly proof in the hard sense, right? And I mean, for actual companies, off-chain things. I mean, th- this is why the securities laws exist and have extremely elaborate independent auditor requirements, right? And even then, there still can be fraud, right? Um, if if they defraud the auditor, but you know, it's pretty hard, right? Wait, in the Caroline testimony, she just said something absolutely amazing, which is when they were dating, SBF said he had ambitions to be the president of the U.S. Honestly, this is like one of the funniest pieces of testimony of this entire thing. I'm going to send the. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, please, please interject if anything else good comes out, uh, but we'll continue discussing in the meantime. What What's mystifying to me, I mean, SBF... It's, it's it's hard to read the transcripts or some of the recount uh, recountings of the trial and not think that SPF is losing horrendously. And of course, he's paying a lot of money and, and there's been multiple reports that he's running out of money to be able to fund his own defense. You know, when you are in discovery, you get access to what the you know opposing party is going to argue, what they're going to say. I don't understand how they could look at the, the lineup of witnesses against him of basically every single one of his lieutenants, almost everybody in his organization has flipped at this point and not think like, wow, we're fucked. Like, why are we wasting money on like a, yeah. a not guilty plea? He should, he should have what's, what's your read on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think he should have copped a plea. And, and look, we know this guy's personality. We know he's a very stubborn and, and somewhat delusional person who, who always thinks somehow he's going to pull a rabbit out of the hat and win. Even when FTX was collapsing, he was still trying things and still convinced to the bitter end that he was going to find some Saudi Arabian financing or something to save it all. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, ultimately it is the defendant's decision uh, whether to cop a plea or go to trial. And, you know, I, I think I imagine that his lawyers probably told him uh, that the odds were stacked against him and, and suggested that he plea. Um, you know, I'm speculating here and, and that he he somehow is convinced, uh, you know, that that he can he can still win. Um, and we also I mean, there also is a natural thing. Right. Right now, we're watching the prosecution put on its case. We have not yet seen the defense's case, but. They are looking somewhat unprepared. You know, it's hard to imagine, you know, the, 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 the strategy that's been leaked for them is two things. Number one, blame Fenwick and West, their lawyers somehow, uh, for being responsible for this, or at least for convincing, uh, for showing that Sam didn't have an intent to defraud, which would take care of some of the, the charges. And number two, to portray his motives as being altruistic uh, because he was part of effective altruism and so forth. And I mean, if that really is their defense, I mean, I think both of those are very, very weak uh, defenses, and, and I don't think it's going to be successful. So I've seen some stuff in the trial about how the judge is pushing back on some of the reliance on counsel defenses, but it sounds like that is their primary defense is that, look, I relied on the advice of counsel. Why is the judge pushing back on some of these things and, or not allowing them to claim that like, hey, I was, my, my lawyer told me to do that? They, they wanted to mention it in the opening arguments. SBF's defense wanted to mention it in the opening arguments. And he said, no, I'm not going to allow you to do that. It can be very confusing to the jury at that stage. However, let's see how the trial goes. Let's see what the witnesses talk about. And you may be able to introduce this during the course of the trial. And in fact, that is what happened today in uh, Gary Wang's testimony uh, earlier today. He did bring up that it was the lawyers uh, that uh, gave him the loan documents that turned out ultimately to be using customer funds. And so him having opened the door to this issue of lawyers on cross-examination, Judge Kaplan did permit SBF's lawyers to further inquire uh, about the lawyers and Gary Wang's interaction with them, et cetera. So it is coming up so far. And, and indeed, we, we don't yet know how much of this they'll be able to bring in when they present their case, but they might be able to bring in a fair amount of it, particularly since the prosecution has somewhat opened the door to it during their case. Okay. So I'm, I'm betraying not knowing very much at all about litigation. So even though this is their primary defense, they are not guaranteed to be able to raise it depending on like how the cross examinations play out. Is that how that works? Yeah, basically. I mean, it, it has to be relevant to the case, right? So, you know, the judge, the judge will weigh in on the things they want to introduce as evidence as they introduce them. Right. So th that's basically what's going on. He didn't, he wasn't willing to let them raise it during opening arguments and you could see why, right? Because you know, it would just be very until you get into the weeds of, OK, you know, how what exactly did the lawyers do? Why are they relevant? It could just be very confusing for the jury on the very first day for SBF's current lawyers to suddenly be talking about his prior lawyers. And like that could totally throw them off. So he just didn't allow it at that stage. But I think ultimately it will be allowed to perhaps show that SBF 
thought that he was acting in, in compliance with the law in certain things that he did, particularly setting up um, this North Dimension shell entity, uh, uh, you know, where basically to, to the public and to certain other parties, it might look like they were interacting with this North Dimension entity when really it was FTX behind it all. There actually could be a defense on that particular claim, um, you know, if indeed the lawyers kind of advised him that it was legal and, and didn't point out that it could be misleading and so on. There are a bunch of other claims, right? And that's only one, but, you know, it could be relevant. So uh, let's talk about the actual Michael Lewis book. So I'm about halfway through it. I'm not at the part where things start breaking yet. I'm surprised at how one, it's a very good read. Like it, it, Michael Lewis is obviously a great writer and he knows how to make people really, you know, jump off the page and, and make them sound very, it, it right now I'm, I'm at the, I'm at the part still where Alameda and FTX sound like a swashbuckling adventure and everybody sounds like very bright eyed and bushy tailed. Um, Tom, you've, you've read, <laughs> you've read the entire book and the fall from grace. Uh, what's your feeling about the book on the whole? Do you recommend it? Definitely. I mean, it's a pretty quick read and, and it is engaging. Um, and it also goes more in sort of the SBF lore and, and backstory, which I feel like is, is actually kind of the interesting part for me. Like I already know about, you know, the FTX bits, but kind of getting, you know, like the summer camp stories and how we got into Jane Street, like that part is interesting. I think um, he does a very good job, I think, of painting the chaos that was internally to FTX and Alameda, talking about them losing a bunch of this ripple by accidentally sending it to this like Korean exchange and then, you know, eventually finding it later. And even the whole move to the Bahamas, there's this sort of anecdote floating around around, oh, they wanted to design the new FTX uh, building as an F and the side should reflect Sam's hair. But that was actually just an anecdote from the architects who were hired to build it. And that spec came from some random person, not Sam, because they had like no direction internally as to like how they should actually build the new headquarters. And so there's all these random bits, even like um, Sam would randomly lock up employees vesting FTT for longer than it was initially agreed to. And he just sort of unilaterally do that. And so he does a very good job of sort of painting the chaos, which I think is probably also the image that Sam is, is leaning on, that this, there was no intent. It was a general sort of uh, um, uh, uh, you know chaos, but there's no sort of intent to, to defraud people. But I think with anecdotes coming out of this case and in front of part of people's testimony, it's really hard to sort of back that up. I think even, even in Gary's testimony, he talks about Alameda being able to trade faster than everybody else, which like directly contradicts a lot of Sam's tweets. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's worth reading just to get some of those that, that color. But, um, you know, with a grain of salt, uh, you know, with with a lot of the details coming out of this trial. Yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, the you know, we, we sort of knew, uh, I think, by, you know, last year that all the stuff about Alameda not having privileged access was all untrue. And a lot of the a lot of the details kind of came out publicly before the, the trial itself. Interestingly, Matt Huang, one of the co-founders of Paradigm, uh, which was an investor, a big investor in FTX, he testified on the stand, uh, basically more or less testifying that he was misled by SBF and that um, you know they made incorrect representations to them about the status of Alameda. And I think there, um, I can't remember if there were other misrepresentations that were made beyond the status of Alameda that Matt Huang testified to, which is interesting because as a VC, it's an it's an odd position to be in of you know being on the stand in a very public trial to the point where you know mainstream press is 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 reporting on what this big VC is talking about on his own portfolio company and basically saying like yeah this person defrauded me um, I don't know what what you guys thought of that because it was a very unique moment I would not assume that a VC would want to testify in a trial like this especially when they they you know it's one thing if you're like flipping on your boss it's another thing if you're voluntarily going in front of him and saying yes my portfolio company defrauded me. 
Yeah, well, I mean, mo most of my private practice in crypto, you know, has been representing, uh, you know, projects when they get VC funding, right? And so I have a good sense of this. And I think it was really a double-edged sword for him, right? Because on the one hand, you know, it's clearly in his interest for the world to know that 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 he was literally that that paradigm was defrauded, right? Um, because th there is a saying in the you know corporate law uh, realm, um, the one thing you can't protect against is fraud. You can't prevent fraud, right? Because it's someone doing something bad on purpose. They give you fake information. You could do all the due diligence in the world. You're doing it based off fake information, right? So, so it's clearly in his interest to portray that. On the other hand, you know. How much, how tight was their due diligence process? There was a lot of FOMO during the bull market. You know, it sounds like SBF definitely played off that and tried to limit the information he would give. So there may be some due diligence failures here that were done and, and that would, that would reflect poorly on them. The, the, the ultimate decision not to request a seat on the board, as would be very typical, um, you know, for a, uh, for, you know, I think there were Series A or Series B at the time company, you know, I mean, they almost always have at least one uh, outside director and it should be, be setting off alarm bells, you know, when that's not the case. So there was definitely some FOMO going on here. I think even though they said they, they performed a lot of due diligence, I believe, you know, on the one hand, SBF carefully tried to create FOMO and and limit how much due diligence they could do. And sounds like they somewhat fell for that, you know. So on the one hand, he looks good because he was actually defrauded and, and there probably wasn't, you know, anyone could have been defrauded. But on the other hand, I think, you know, they they somewhat lowered their standards beyond the typical of, of what corporate governance structure they would accept. And, and you got to think that somewhat uh, reflects badly on them. But, you know, maybe they've tightened up now and they've learned their lesson. I, I guess like one thing, I would say is maybe I'd ask you the question, Hasib. Like, suppose you were in Matt's shoes. Like, would you testify? Like, say the AUSA came to you and was like, "Hey, like, do you want to testify against Sam?" Like, suppose you were like, like, what, what would you do? What would you have just said, yes or no? My assumption is that I would not want to do that. I mean, I again, I don't know how this plays into the optics as you were mentioning Gabe of like, look, I want to show the world that I was defrauded and that this was not like me fucking up in due diligence. This was, this person made willful misrepresentations to me. And that's why, you know, this, this investment went so far South. I can see that being a part of it in general. I feel like it's just such a, it's such a terrible thing to be a part of is like the criminal trial of somebody you invested into. My instinct would just be, I just want to be as far away from that as I can. I mean, it's not just also the time and you have to go actually, you know, go to wherever the trial is taking place and just be a part of that entire process, which sounds uh, just, you know, painful and time consuming, but it also obviously, you know, there were many investors in FTX, right? So somebody, you know, maybe somebody less credible than, than, than Matt might've been willing to, to, to testify to the same thing. Wait, I thought Alfred Lin was also listed as one of the potential government. Was, is he? Yeah, if I remember correctly, I saw, yeah, I thought he was on the witness list also. Potential no, witness no, list. no, no. That would be much bigger you news. Sure? No, no, no. That would be bigger news if he was going to testify. I would, I definitely would have seen that if he was going to testify. I don't believe so. I could, I mean, correct us if we're wrong, but I don't believe Alfred Lynn is going to testify here. I mean, the other thing is like you want to be away from the headline, right? You kind of want to bury this thing. Like, I, I mean, that's why Alfred almost certainly would not want to testify in this thing because he doesn't want to call attention to it. Doesn't want to be back in the headlines, right? It's sort of like this re-traumatization. He, he is, he is on the list. But there's a, there's a. Here's the article. Here's a Bloomberg article talking about the filed witness list. Is this like people who are actually going to testify or people who are willing to testify? They're potential witnesses. So I don't know if he's actually yeah. going to call them. 
Yeah, see, the list of potential witnesses provided to jurors on the first day of trial. It included him. Really? Yes. Wow. That's what I'm saying. I, 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 I I don't understand the calculus behind these decisions, but I don't think Matt's the only one. Speaking of jurors. I mean, those are the two largest investors. I think Martin Shkreli also had a nice rundown of, of jury selection, which was super interesting. First of all, of someone from Insight who was an investor in FTX, was you're part of the jury selection process and obviously got dismissed. But it's very funny that of all the people that could have gotten drafted for jury selection in New York, someone from Insight uh, um, was part of the potential juror list. And then Martin talked about um, sort of the strategy for how to like you know win over a jury I can't remember the nuance there, but I think he was saying like, look, there's some banker and there's some like stay at home mom or something like that. And it's like, these are the people that you're going to want to you know win over. But there's some sort of strategy, I think, overall to like trying to get some sort of uh, mistrial or trying to make sure there was like not consensus within the jury. Strange. Yeah, I don't really understand what would lead you to want to testify in this case, because I would assume you just wanted you just don't want to be in the headlines. Um, I don't know, Tom, what's your intuition? Yeah, I was also very confused unless it's you know maybe having some sort of internal sense of wanting to bring justice but like i don't think matt's testimony or any investor's testimony is going to be essential to closing up this case because it was not a you know solely an issue of defrauding investors but it was more this this broader story around defrauding users so i I don't know i I was also a bit confused but maybe there's some some backstory there that we don't know yeah i mean i i do think there is some positive benefit to be like publicly displaying that maybe you were defrauded. I think I will say, I, yeah, I kind of agree though that like I don't think the investor's testimony matters to the criminal case, or it doesn't seem like it it does at all in any way, shape, or form. Like if I if I replayed the trial with or without investor testimony, I would expect the same. Outcome. Well, it, well, it does because part of the part of the charges are securities fraud, right? And I guess that, that's true. That, that's is, true. Not, that's that is not customer facing. That is investor facing, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. That that then that's fair. That's fair. That that might be the real reason. Like the this was sort of needed too. Yeah. And that can hmm. that plays into other charges, right? Because all they need all they need is one fraud thing to stick, right? And then they can get a bunch of sort of like money laundering and bank fraud things that like stem from that, right? So yeah, there there's 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 kind of like a domino effect here. You know, they they kind of have a case that they misled investors and then they also have a case that they misled customers and also stole money, literally stole money from customers. And then either proving either one of those things I think could lead to uh, some downstream charges and that all plays into sentencing and prison time and so forth. Right. I yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like the overall outcome I, I guess I was thinking more of the binary outcome of like any charge sticks versus none, but you're right that like the overall compendium of of possible outcomes does seem to change a lot with investors. I I, I mean I I guess if I were the government, I would want the investors testifying then. That that like makes a ton of sense. Yeah, no, makes sense. I, so what, what seems surprising and very un SBF like is so okay, the trial is going terribly for SBF, right? He's spending a lot of money on his defense. Is is it a thing where you can just like rage quit a trial and be like, look, this is a waste of our time. I'm paying my lawyers. Like this obviously is going to drag out for a while. Why don't I just give up? Clearly this is going against me. Judge doesn't like me. Like my counsel is fucking up. Like let's just, let's just call it quits and say, you know what? I'm going to switch to a guilty plea. Like we're done. 
I mean, sure, he he could do that. It wouldn't make sense for him just to like just do a guilty plea. It would only make sense, you know, if the government would would strike some sort of deal with him, right? And, and I so think the government doesn't offer S- a deal. He just should go through this, with it, right? This is very SBF reasoning, right? Because you know he's he's the one always he's super into these asymmetric bets, right? Where even if there's a small chance of winning, but it's a really big win, you know, then you should do it, right? And I, I think that's exactly what's happening here, right? So only if the government would offer some some good deal right uh would it make sense for him and at this point why would they ever offer that they're winning right they're kicking his ass so i I don't picture that happening i think this is going to go to the bitter end it doesn't feel like the trial is going to last that long though right i mean i I would assume that like he's wasting so much money yeah but you know i think you can't think about this from like a kelly uh sizing kind of perspective it's like this is effectively your last game you know this is your last bet so you you have to go all in there there is no sort of uh uh you know next round and so I, I agree with Gabe. I'm guessing that's kind of the calculus that he's doing. Uh, it sort of makes sense. At the same time, I would think a very SPF thing to do is like look at the prediction markets and see what the chances are that he wins the <laughs> he actually wins any of the uh, particular charges, and then just say like, look, I'm just going to get lighter sentencing and save some money if I just plead guilty, possibly. Well, it takes this one juror, yeah, who's sympathetic with him. I mean, it's yeah. I was looking at the Shkreli tweet, and he said there, there's basically everyone else on the jury thinks is going to. Uh, convict, but there's one banker who has some sort of form of cancer, and he's like, you could probably get him to like get some sympathy, and he's sort of, you know, maybe towards the end of his life, and so maybe you can get him to acquit. Yeah, so he's like, that's kind of his best bet, but I don't know. Wow, just pure speculation. Wow. Man, Shkreli is really playing another level uh, on this on this trial, thinking breaking it down. Yeah, he's been going to this trial. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, he, I read he's, that. That's he's crazy. He's turning into a hell of a courtroom analyst. I mean, uh, I'd rather see him on on the Law and Crime Network than a lot of the people they currently have. He's pretty good. He's he's had quite a comeback. I've been I've been very impressed at this like Shkreli 2.0. Um, I think the, the 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 contrast between him and SBF is very striking. I feel like it, it is really funny well to him. think about how like that flipped over like the last two years, right? Like if if you like plotted the chart of their their like success and failure. <laughs> Very true. Very true. They are kind of the inverses of each other. When do you think way. they were like the equal? What like what point in time? Like when in twenty twenty two? I think I would the say like slope a might have been Luna. so severe. I think a little after Luna. A little after Luna. It might have been like as just straight through the floor. Like there's zero derivative. You know, like they, actually, just, I would uh, say, I would say like change. a year ago. Because remember, like after mm-hmm. Luna crashed, somehow Sam got all these like puff pieces written about him that were like. Oh, this guy is the JP Morgan. The new JP Morgan, out. that's right. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember those? Yes. I think the media I do is probably that. the the media should be just as embarrassed as the investors for not doing diligence. Like I thought that was some of those things no, were just like I, look, I I don't think that's fair to blame the media for that stuff. I mean, it's like how if we did not know, how would they know? You did know? you see that spreadsheet that that Forbes released? Or like what qualified him as a billionaire, that thing was more embarrassing because like it came out in the case because of the amount of tether they submitted. Yeah. Well, also the um, I think there was some anecdote also in the book about um, uh, SBF being on um, you know Forbes uh, top 100 wealthiest list or whatever in 2021 or something like that, and you have them having to do some rough accounting of his net worth to present to Forbes and. Um, Obviously, it's like not nonsense because they had like a bunch of locked SRM and like FTT and shit as like part of his uh, uh, net worth. And then, you know, this, this sort of story comes out and like the Forbes uh, journalist who was working on that was like, oh, yeah, I knew from the moment they, they sent that spreadsheet that there's probably some bullshit going on because 
you know, SBF's net worth sort of calculation looks totally different from, from everybody else's. It's a bunch of like totally random illiquid assets. Um, and so, I mean, obviously it's, it's easy to have you know, 2020 hindsight, but I thought that was kind of funny. Well, my, my recollection of that story, it's in the very beginning of the book. And uh, from what I recall, he says that when they were providing their, uh, you know, they have to do some accounting of your assets and, and what your net worth is to Forbes. And SBF believed internally that he was worth over $100 billion. But they thought that was too dramatic of a number because nobody really knew who he was and Forbes didn't really have him on his radar. And so they're like, we can't, we can't tell them that. That's like way too much. And so they, they basically took out a bunch of stuff. Like they took out a bunch of the Solana, they took out a bunch of the SRM and a bunch of stuff. And they basically were like, look, we, we own, uh, you know, Sam owns 60% of FTX. FTX was just valued at 40 billion. And that's where Forbes got the $25 billion number because they were just like, look, we can't really account for the rest of this stuff because I don't know what the fuck it is and I don't really know how to explain it. But SBF internally believed that he was worth $100 billion, which is a crazy number, right? He, he believed he was worth I mean, more than it's like Trump. Do you, do you remember when Trump was yes, like- Yes, yes, yes. It's like, it's like yes. exactly like the Trump, like my net worth is my brand and my brand is worth more than my physical assets type of bullshit logic. But the thing is yes, all of the, which, media, the media fell for it. So like I- I still blame them. Like I'm, I'm, I'm much more like militant than you. Well, no, but look, to be fair, I mean, Forbes did history. take for, I mean, Forbes accounted for FTX the way the investors did, right? Like they literally didn't credit him with anything else. 25 billion they, means all he has they, is FTX. They, they credited all the FTT. <laughs> I thought that was funny. They, that was included in the calculation. I, th I thought it wasn't. I thought that was the, the anecdote that he gave uh, at the beginning of the story was that 25 billion is just 40, uh, 60% uh, of 40 billion. And that's the number that he was given in the Forbes, uh, whatever richest people thing. That was my that was my the, understanding. The, the, we could go back and check that. The spreadsheet that got put, that got posted. Um, I think it was. It's actually an exhibit in the trial. I'm not exactly yeah, sure so why. His own internal representation of his net worth was a much larger number than what Forbes credited him with. That's my understanding. They they did send a, a um, I, I think a, a shave down. Uh, uh, net worth sheet, but I think the anecdote where they sort of circle back with the Forbes employee, I think is like closer to the end of the book, um, where there is kind of like, uh, hey, we're obvious okay, signs in retrospect. And so, you know, obviously it's sort of post hoc uh, rationalizing what was happening, but um, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's kind of the idea. So, look, the, you know, coming back to this thing that uh, Tarun and I, you were getting into it last time about SBF, one of the things that I I think I rebel against. And this is part of the reason why, we, you know, we kind of got into this back and forth yesterday, uh, last week about SBF's intentions is that there's this thing that happens when somebody ends up having a fall from grace that everything they do in their past gets reinterpreted as like, oh, he was, everything was nefarious from the very beginning and like, oh, he knew it all along and oh, he's this dastardly, whatever. Um, and it, it, people are doing this now with, you know, his net worth and with journalists and with blah, 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 and like everything. And I think it, like the reality, I mean, this is, I guess, a very SBF thing to say, but the reality is that like everything is uncertain, you know, like when we were looking at SBF, none of us thought that he was stealing money from his customers. We thought, yeah, okay, there's probably some bullshit accounting going on with respect to valuing your FTT at par and all this stuff. But, you know, we all, we all understood that there were some things that were, um, you know, he was, he was, he was moving fast. He was obviously shaving down a lot of the edges of how one normally thinks about accounting and valuation, but nobody knew that he was, that he was defrauding his customers, that he was taking money out of the, out of the uh, cookie jar, so to speak. And um, I think it's a little bit, uh, what do I want to say? Like people really try to simplify the past when they go back and they redo this accounting and they say, ah, actually everything was part of this big conspiracy. Everybody should have known from all along. And there were all these signs that, you know, I was thinking this and I didn't tell anyone, but I always knew that something was wrong with him. 
And I, I, I hate it when this happens. It happens invariably whenever somebody falls from grace that everything they've ever done gets reinterpreted as, you know, this, this most kind of villainous type of version of what it was. And it just wasn't, right? Like, I mean, we, we were there. We were debating about SBF back when all this J.P. Morgan stuff was coming out and he was bailing out these companies. And, and you know, we were talking about it in the show. And, you know, I, I think knowing what we knew at the time, there was no way that you could have looked at that and said, aha, clearly he is trying to bail out his own lenders and there's this horrible, you know, interconnected web of, and he's, he's really stealing money at the bottom of all this. But that's very much what people want to do. So anyway, I, I don't have a, a deeper point than that, but I think this, this is part of what frustrates me when something like this happens. Yeah, usually I agree with you that, that there's kind of a, a pitchfork and fire going after the person that might not be deserved. But in this case, I don't agree. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not deserved. To be clear, I'm not saying it's not deserved. I'm not saying it's not deserved. What I'm saying is that people are going back and revising history in such a way that oh, it was obvious all along. There were all these signs. Why, you know, why didn't people know? And like, look, there are, there are a lot of founders who are weird. There are a lot of founders who have SBF-like characteristics. And I do not, now that SBF turned out to be this you know, crazy psychopath, I do not automatically assume that like, ah, this guy is like kind of autistic Great, he must be an SBF type. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to do extra diligence now, assuming that he's going to defraud his customers. I mean, look, everyone's doing extra diligence, but it's not because, you know, ah, uh, we should have known it all along that SBF was just a psychopath. I think, though, you know, a lot of credit to people who kind of avoided the SBF ecosystem. Like, for instance, you know, your your partners at Dragonfly, when they evaluated the investment in 2018, 2018, 2018 uh, you know, there were very obvious irregularities and, you know, that people, Absolutely. Talk, people talked about for years. And it's like somehow yes, those like, we, we talked about that internally all the time. And I've talked about it on the show that like Sam really did not like us and we did not invest in anything that Sam ever showed us. We didn't invest into FT, uh, FTX, FTT, uh, Serum, blah, blah, you know, all this stuff in the Solana ecosystem, we avoided all of it, right? And, and we always had the sense that Sam was super aggressive. He was flying really close to the sun. He was very extractive. That was our perception of him, right? But it was not that he was, you know, this, this psychopath and he was, you know, on the, on the rampage of stealing money from people. If we had thought that, we would have behaved very differently than just avoiding him in rounds. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just saying, like, I think there was, you know, some people did, did to their credit actually stick to doing that right like there are a lot of people i feel like 2018 2019 were like no 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 and then 2021 they're like solana went up and they they made solana happen so like we're gonna cop copy trade and like you know i think i think the the level of like human psychology to erase the former you know woes is is something that it's it's the it's the duel of the thing you're you're describing right the 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 thing you're describing is like once something bad happens, everyone goes and revises to be like they sucked, they did everything bad. Uh, but there's the opposite where, you know, when suddenly it looks like hey, someone is like uh, making yield that is 500% for me, then like I'm willing to revise and pretend that everything that they did that was bad didn't exist. And I think like you know we we should we should keep that in mind when evaluating people's decision-making prowess in hindsight, right? And, and that's why it's worth kind of calling out some of these. Uh, look, I agree. And look, look, okay, so all of us are at funds. A lot of the first half of the book, which is, again, most of what I've read so far, talks about SBF's upbringing, his personality, his sort of quirks, uh, his quirks of character. And 
you know, in the first half of the book, it's also it's also quite a glowing picture, I think, of SPF. It, it like starts off quite positive before it kind of goes you know, off the rails. And it really made me think like, okay, this 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 person is clearly very unique. They're very he's, he's a very exceptional person. He's obviously very smart. Um, he goes off the beaten path. He is exactly what most uh, investors say they are looking for in a founder: is somebody who is kind of weird, challenges assumptions. Uh, you know, is 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 willing to basically you know take the fast path to try to accomplish something that most people take their entire lives to to get to. Now he he had a lot of massive problems uh, in terms of being a terrible leader, being a very bad communicator, obviously being willing to cut corners in places where you should not be cutting corners, such as you know accounting for all of your assets when you're running a fucking fund. But I guess the question I want to ask is is as you are recontextualizing the story, how does the SPF story make you rethink? the attributes you look for in founders? I think one aspect, having known him for a long time before and talked to him for many years, I could never get past the fact that there was someone who would like tell you something like, oh, you know why Solana is the best? It's a low latency blockchain. Okay, how does a low latency blockchain work? I don't know. I don't care. It's low latency. And it's like, he always had this ability to have the veneer of like, just enough technical detail to like sound like chat GPT, but then not enough to like understand. Like I think the Socratic method is always the best way. It's like the number one way of like trying to really tease out things out of people. And I think like fundamentally for whether it's interviewing people or diligencing investments, like actually trying to see like how, how much of what is said is like the, the veneer of that, like even this Kelly stuff, right? Like a lot of it got like, taken blown out of proportion in a way that's like it, it's like he almost didn't understand the assumptions of when kelly worked at all right like kelly assumes a bunch of independence it assumes a bunch of different things about the bets it assumes that like the possible worth you know the possible amount of currency that exists is infinite in theory right because like the, there has to be some sort of doubling rate natural doubling rate so i think there's sort of a thing in which Figuring out if people understand the assumptions of how they get to the end, end goal versus just only understanding the end goal they want to get to is actually extremely important for understanding how founders think about their companies or their ideas. So you feel them. like you're, you would be more scrupulous about the intellectual underpinnings of founders after your interactions with SBF? I mean, I didn't invest in any of the things you tried to pitch me over the last five years. No FTT, no right, Sarah, right, right. nothing. So, like, I, you know, it's like I, I got all of those and I listened to them and I asked him questions. I was like, why Solana? And this is not a knock in Solana. In fact, I would say Solana, real credit to them for being the most resilient blockchain community after that. Like, I feel like they've like come out of the hole as a very strong. Like, like I think that they have, they're now a cockroach, right? They've survived like a nuclear event and still have users, still having like things, you know, growing. Like there, there, there is, there's a lot to admire. It's just that I don't think SBF understood any of the reasons for their technology. His, his own thing, his whole thing was like low latency in TradFi, good. Low latency in blockchain, good. Right? Like, and like you could, you, if you start asking questions of like, what, what trade offs are you making? What assumptions exist? When, when do those assumptions hold? He could never answer any of that. And he, that sort of like lack of clarity to me always just seemed like, okay, well, what's the difference between you and Rich, you know, Richard Hart? Right? Like at some level. And like there, there's kind of a very small line at that point. Richard Hart is smarter. Technically, <laughs> in technical well, terms, Richard I actually Hart think does, he's Richard, better. Yeah. Richard Hart does own 
is the largest die holder, which is a fun trivia fact. And, and and I think and I think he thinks about the legal a lot more. I mean, I think Richard Hartz may have the first truly non fraudulent Ponzi scheme in history, right? Um, like he, he, if he's ever on trial, I think it's going to look very different, right? Because um, you know it, it was all on chain, in fact, and yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, so uh, I, I come at this from a more legal perspective, right? And I see this in deals all the time. Um, like if it's a very big round and they're still raising off of something like a safe, why? If they don't have, if they don't want any sort of corporate governance or don't want independent board members. Why? If you put representations about the financial statements into the docs and you get super weird changes back that are not customary, what are they hiding, right? And I think, again, bull market, I just saw a lot of deals where they were FOMO-driven, people abandoned the usual customary market practices, and then you wind up with this sort of thing. Tom, what's your take on that question? Um, I'm also reading the um, Walter Isaacson, Elon Musk um, bio in, in in tandem, and so it's actually kind of interesting. I think to compare uh, uh, SBF and Elon, and because they are similar in many ways, in the sense of being kind of low EQ on the spectrum, um, being sort of obsessed with challenging assumptions, moving fast, cutting corners. Like they talk about sort of the early SpaceX days and sourcing like random consumer grade you know products because they assumed that it would be sufficiently good for sort of aerospace, which you know it turned out maybe being okay. But I, I do kind of come back to Tarun's point, which is you know even though Elon was, was spread pretty thin. He was also very obsessed with a lot of the inner workings and specific engineering and design details of Tesla and SpaceX in a way that SBF just was not. I mean, even if you say, hey, he doesn't know anything about crypto, he knows a lot about trading, like the sort of basic accounting uh, uh, principles are sort of missing at Alameda. And so how can you actually take, you know, calculate P&L and, and run a profitable fund if you don't even know uh, if you have sort of basic compliance uh, 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 restrictions in place. And so um, I think that in my mind is, is kind of the difference. Yeah, I think one thing to actually note, having done sort of like the job he did before he started Alameda, is that when you're a quant or a developer at a trading firm, like a quant trading firm, you're usually isolated from all of the operational details. Like you're just like, here's a stream of numbers, like, find a function that predicts the stream of next stream of numbers and like i don't you don't really care about anything else and there is kind of the sense i think matt levine covered this uh before he when he was a little more sympathetic in his his uh sort of going infinite style arc he he was a little more like oh well yeah these kids they kind of like only worked on the math side they never really like did any of the compliance stuff so then like they get together their friends they start a trading firm they're obviously going to mess it up and there's a sense in which that's true, but there's a sense in which the compounding of that is the fraud to me. It's not the actual like, hey, I don't know how to fucking do these types of reconciliation processes correctly. It's the fact that, hey, I don't know how to do it. And I, instead of trying to figure that out, I like instead try to like keep, you know, co- coming up with like a new Ponzi to cover it up. Right. Like and that, that the serum and FTT fundraisers are a great example of that. Aggressively coming into you telling you that there's a seven-year lockup, telling you that like, oh, it's going to change everything. And then you ask why, how, what's your architecture? Like, what are the details? Details doesn't matter. doesn't matter. I'm going to make it happen. Like that type of bozo confidence is like always a thing you should run away from. So, okay. I, I, I take your point 
both you and Tom are kind of pushing on this, like, okay, you, you got to really deeply understand the tech. And if you don't, and you're abstracting with the details, you're going to fuck it up. Or you have to show that you try or care at all. You don't even have sure, to sure. fully understand I mean, it, right? The thing, the, thing that, the thing that occurs to me, so Sam, at the end of the day, was running an exchange, right? I mean, that was, that was the core, nominally the core business of, of FTX. I think CZ would have failed this test. Right. If you if you say this for Sam, I think CZ fails. Even though CZ has launched Binance Smart Chain, which is the you know probably the single most users of any blockchain today, I don't think he is very deep on the tech. I don't think he, he's you know he can say stuff, but I don't think he's like nearly as deep as one would otherwise want about why Binance Smart Chain, why an Ethereum fork, why this particular bridging mechanism. I think just I don't know. My tech guy said to do it. He's obviously much higher EQ and probably a better leader than SBF. So first of all, I think like it's genuinely hard. And I think you also want to be careful from assuming that every single person who turns out to be a bad apple contains within them a deeper lesson about, you know, how to find the next bad apple. Um, fraud is, fraud works because it's hard to find. Uh, if the fraud was easy to find, people would have found it. They would have not invested, right? And so there is something in a way from the fact that so many, you know, very, very experienced, very, very smart investors invested in FTX. I think there's stuff that they didn't understand that maybe people you know in this uh, room might have understood. Um, but what they did understand very well was people. And so I think the fact that they were misled by SPF showed that SPF was very good at misleading people. So it's almost like a little bit of an efficient markets hypothesis in a way about personality, right? That like, I don't think there's necessarily a free lunch there. I, I guess the thing that I would, that I feel like I have updated, and I don't know if this is the correct update to make, is that um, it really, really underscores the importance of integrity for me. And in crypto, there are a lot of, I don't want to say low integrity people, but sort of medium integrity people where it's like, you know, look, I, I would not trust them with my life, but I more or less assume they're going to follow the rules. And I guess at the margin, it makes me less likely to want to back somebody like that, where somebody who's low integrity in crypto, if you look, if you're a professional VC, you just never touch people who, who have low integrity because this space is so easy to defraud people with for, for all the obvious reasons, right? It's easy to hack things, easy to hide things. You know, SPF obviously did a lot of that. But I think the the amount of integrity you need in order to be backable in the space, I, I, to my mind, went up. People often draw analogies to like, you know, Travis Kalanick or these kinds of people who are kind of bullheaded. They're kind of assholes. Uh, they kind of break the rules. And, you know, you need a little bit of that in order to start a startup. That's kind of the lore of startups in general. And I, I guess I just feel like in crypto, um, it's harder to stomach that after seeing uh, what SBF did and... I don't know. At the same time, like, I think that also would have led you to not invest in, in CZ perhaps. So that's a real question, right? Like, you know, Binance is the most successful business in this industry. I think there's a, a sort of cultural context that's also worth differentiating between the two. That is true. Because CZ was really not trying to ever attract Western investors and like agree to certain standards and like, fake audits for Western, you know, it's like, it was, it was a, it, it, it's, it, it was a different context in which he was fundraising. It was a different context in which Binance was started. And that's right. You remember Sequoia sued Binance for basically fucking them on the equity investment. So I don't know how sure. different it really well, feels no, no, for people who were close to the metal on that one. Wasn't this was Sequoia, Sequoia China, China, correct? Yeah. So it's like yes. slightly different, slightly different, but, but I, I guess like, I think the, the difference is like, A, the accounting standards weren't well known in 2017. Like no one knew anything <laughs> about that. Like I, I don't, I didn't know how people Arguably, didn't even, like, they still don't. Arguably, I still don't. But at least like now, there's a bit more uh, clarity. 
But B, again, I, I just think like culturally, it was like not trying to like be like we are the uphold, you know, we're upholding like the full Western financial institution standards. Like they were just not claiming that. Whereas FTX is like going to the CFTC and trying to get them to change the rules for collateral requirements for 24 hour trading. Like, you know, one of them is like taking a particular cultural stance. Like it's like we will bring this thing and make it match your rules. And then, you know, turned out not to do any of that. And that's where I think it's sort of this weird thing, right? Like, I think, I think like the, the Uber comparison is, is also kind of interesting in the sense of there are places in the world where like Uber was welcomed, right? Like they didn't actually have that much local transit and it was great. Right. So, but the places where it did have the most problem and where they broke the most rules were the ones where culturally it was like, they already had some sort of standards and that sort of led to this fight. Right. And I think the cultural context in which uh, founders developing a company is also worth keeping in mind. And I'm not trying to say like, mm -hmm. oh, then, you know, like CZ fails my Socratic test, like, oh, never invest in finance. I, I, I'm just saying like culturally it would have to be that. But Sam was always representing it as this like Western domination Goldman Sachs replacement type of thing, right? Like it's... True. It's, it's it's like that representation it carries with it a different set of standards and um, kind of you know rules of the road that are expected. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that, I think it's very well articulated. the The only other thing I would add to that is that um, you know a couple of you guys mentioned board seats and you know their fight to, to basically minimize governance uh, from investors. Look, if we get into another bull market, that is going to happen again. You know, I, I, I don't think that S, uh, FTX has permanently changed the equilibrium so much as it just changed the market conditions. And that's why investors are basically taking more governance rights today than they were two years ago. Um, if we get into a wild bull market again, the, the balance of power is going to shift back to entrepreneurs. And it's not, it's not going to mean there's no governance, but that, of course, investors are going to be able to demand less in terms of governance rights than they can right now. I, I guess the thing that I would fixate on is not so much like, do entrepreneurs want to minimize governance rights for investors? They generally do. You know, yes, we can kind of wax poetic about how great it is for co companies to have oversight. If you're a founder, and look, I get it. You know, I've been in that situation. You want to minimize the amount of control people have other than you because you want to move fast. You don't want to have bosses. You just want to build your thing. And these people are investors. They're not builders. I, I guess the thing, though, is that like SBF uniquely felt like he had an adversarial relationship with his investors in a way that really seemed unique to me. Um, I think most other founders, I, I don't see that. I once was at a dinner where in, in May, 2021, like Bitcoin Miami, and he said explicitly, I view investors as Muppets <laughs> or something along those lines. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I was like, wow, that's fucking crazy for you to say that. But it was, it was like, Kind of a, I, I thought it was a joke, but in hindsight, I'm, I'm like, maybe I well, don't think that's I, because far from in the, the book truth. he talks about, hey, we don't actually need the money, but we need legitimacy, and we need this appearance of of you know of being being received well by sort of the Western establishment. So let's take on some VCs, even though you know I don't actually want them. Right, that makes sense. Well, um, sadly, we have spent the entire hour talking about SPF, which was exactly what we were hoping not to do. We had some stuff about Lido on the agenda, and we just have not. We do we have unfortunately have run out of time. Gabe, did we miss anything? Sorry, I know we we went on this like VC tangent diatribe, but was there any other? <laughs> no, no. I mean, thing? you know, just the other thing I would throw the other comparison point 
Um, well, two, number one, the Theranos thing, right? And, you know, she was another total sociopath, even faked her voice. And, you know, there were probably some warning signs of that. And again, you know, maybe it was her feminine wiles and stuff, uh, working on these old guys that led them not to do due diligence. It's always something. And then I think also just that Elon Musk, you know, he, he also, uh, just another classic case, when SBF was considering investing into Twitter, he, he detected the fraud, right? Or so he claims, right? Um, so it, it, it is kind of a takes one to no one type of thing. And a lot of legit investors just aren't on the lookout for fraud as such, right? Theranos, I think, though, is a very different story because most of the people investing in Theranos were not like high quality VCs. Um, they were mostly, you know, family offices and, you know, retired. Rupert Murdoch. Like old money. Yes, it was more old money than it was uh, like, you know, smart VC money. Uh, FTX is unique because it was this dramatic fraud that was taking place, but people were supposed to be good at judges, good judges of character. But anyway, it seems like there's gonna be a lot more juice coming out over the next week. Gabe, if you had to give over under, how long do you think until we get to the, the end of the trial, or at least this portion of the trial? I think, I think it's going to be another three weeks. They scheduled six weeks, but I mean, it's, it's moving very fast. Okay. So you think by basically, uh, November, we're going to have a verdict? Well, verdict, I don't know. I think the trial will be done. I don't know how long the jury, you know, will decide, will take to decide. Got it. Okay. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. One last question. What do you think about the sleeping juror? There's supposedly this juror falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he has a night job and he didn't tell him. Um, I mean, you know, that these are the sorts of things that on appeal, you know, maybe maybe they can make something out of that, uh, you know, they, they didn't know what they were doing and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know. My lawyers ate my homework and the juror fell asleep. Please excuse me from a hundred years. That good, honestly, that's a pretty good cause for appeal is like one of the jurors they, they, was sleeping they get, through the They trial. get all the... Um, they get all the evidence to review. They, they can review it at their leisure during deliberations. The other jurors can fill them in. I mean, my, my guess is that this is not going to end up making a difference, but yeah. That's not the banker, is it? No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. The sleeping no. juror? It's okay, like a security guard or something like that. Yeah, he works at night. A security guard. Oh, man. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, we will be back. By the way, any, any juice from uh, Caroline while we were recording this? Uh, not nothing too crazy. The president one was the one that the internet was going crazy on. I think the other things she talked about were how like they did a lot of FTT sold Solana trading um, because that, Solana was like the only way to get liquidity for for FTT. And then she talks a little bit about how Sam sort of ordered her to like make sure there's a price floor on FTT. People at Alameda didn't really quite like understand why they kept buying it, but she just had to keep telling them to buy more. Trabuco showed up once as in like his name came up and anything else? Uh, not really. Nothing that interesting. The president thing was hilarious though. Like the idea that like, I don't know. Yeah. I will say uh, without disclosing who I've had multiple people in crypto tell me that they want to become president. So this is a, this is kind of a thing. I don't know why this is a thing in crypto, but this is a thing. Well, you're trying to separate the state from money philosophically. So like obviously that means <laughs> that like you know, he who creates the money that separated the state is he who has some sort of some type of power. But the question is, are you more of a president or are you more like Osho? Probably the latter. Osho. The cult, famous cult leader from Oregon from the 1980s. Wild, wild uh, okay. country. That's it. You have to watch the that. Did not see it. That's a deep cut. That's a great. Okay. That's a great documentary. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good note to end it on. A cult leader. 
We'll be back next week. Hopefully, I mean, I, we will almost certainly continue to talk about the SPF trial, but hopefully we'll be able I'm to sorry, talk about Tom. other stuff as well. Tom, Tom, Tom of, of the four of us, Tom is always the most saddened by the this SBF. That's it. Tom is the only one who actually read the entire can, book. So you I feel like it's see, a little bit, it's, you can it's, a little see bit the pain, it's a little bit of both. You can see the pain on his face of having to keep talking about this. <laughs> Just getting back to basics a little bit, you know? <laughs> all right. All right. Next week, we will try our best to get back to basics. Yeah. We'll try our, we'll try our best. Gabe, thanks for coming on and sharing your, your insight. Always Thank appreciate you. it. My pleasure. Looking forward to seeing your takes on crypto Twitter. Great. All right. Until next week. See you, everybody. Bye.